So the first reading comes from Deuteronomy 19, um, verses 15 to 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both the parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness, uh, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity; it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth hand for hand, foot for foot. Our second reading uh, comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5, as we've been going through, uh, and we're going to be reading verse 15 to 21. Verse 15. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows... Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders rule well, uh, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the presence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is the word of the Lord. One Timothy chapter five, and we'll be looking at verses seventeen down to twenty-one. One Timothy chapter five, seventeen down to twenty-one. As we shift into the second half of work, working through the book of One Timothy, we're starting to get lots of specific details, and these details are important for us. Sometimes people want to say, "Just give us the gospel. Just tell us about Jesus and the cross." Those things are central, those things are essential, but so too is everything that Jesus says to us. We have a wonderful little verse in Ephesians 5.17 that says, find out what the will of the Lord is. Or my NIV would say, find out what pleases the Lord. So if we people understand the cross, we understand what Christ has done to us, we understand the gospel, we come to Jesus, then we want to live and order our lives in a way that pleases him. We don't want to find ourselves just doing what is right in our own eyes. Sometimes people will be in the church, they've got a general idea of what the Bible has to say and they start trying to live out their lives practically 
in ways that they just think is right, where actually Jesus in his word gives us nearly all the specifics we're going to need. And we don't want to just be doing things our way out of ignorance. We want to come to God's word. And so it's important that we consider all the little things that we are picking up as we go through the second half of 1 Timothy. And remember, we're the household of God. This is the family of God. And so when we come together, those details, those specific things are for us all to understand. I don't know how your family's operated, but growing up, I remember we had a few family meetings where we'd all sit around the table and dad or mum would explain to us what's going down and why and what's, how things need to operate or what needs to change. It's important that everyone understands. It's not enough to have some people in the family in the dark and other people understanding what needs to happen. The healthy way for a family to run is everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows what's expected. And so when we get to some of these details too, we've had a few sections on elders, which is what this book has a lot to say about, it's important that as a family we understand what the Word says and say, oh, that's not important to me. Because we need to understand so that we can think rightly and make sound decisions. And so the section that we're going to be looking today is Paul again as the spokesman for Jesus. So Jesus is going to confront us with today is thinking a little bit more about the role of elders in the church, in particular wages and accusations. They're the two parts so we'll just click on to the next slide. Thanks, Amy. And so this is something for us to think about. In verses 17, 18, it says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Well, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. So I've split it into two parts, which is essentially how the Bible divides lots of things. Doctrine and life. Paul constantly says to Timothy, what's your life, what's your doctrine? Because they go together. How we think, our doctrine works out in how we live our life. We never separate them. If all we have is doctrine and it's not changing the way we live, that doctrine's useless. It's condemning, the Bible actually says. So the Apostle Paul often talks about doctrine and life. The, uh, John, when he writes his letters, he'll talk about truth and love. What is the truth? How are we about to think about this? And how are we to show it out in our actions, in our love? But often we talk about what's the teaching, what's the application? And so firstly, let's think about what's the doctrine or the truth that these verses are telling us about elders as we shift to this idea of wages. And we've seen as we've gone through 1 Timothy that God would have elders appointed in his church. And here we see that these appointed elders have this role to rule. King James, ESV, which I'm using, RSV, translated as elders who rule well. NIV, I think, as directs the affairs of the church. And so, elders have this role to actively oversee the life of the church. So a church isn't to be leaderless or rudderless or just drifting. God would have elders appointed. Christ is the chief shepherd. And the term that he refers to is that in each local church, he would have under shepherds placed who would oversee the flock, accountable to him. And that is for the good of his church. They have that responsibility of making sure that the faith once for all given is guarded and, up and kept to. 
and put into practice. They, that prim- they do that primarily through the teaching of the word and the ministry of the word because we come back to what God has to say. They have that role of equipping the saints because we read that in Ephesians. The role of the elders and the pastors in the church is to make sure everyone's using their gifts and active and growing and serving in the life of the church. And those elders are accountable to God. So churches where there are elders, those elders will be held accountable to a degree that others will not be in the life of the church. Just as in a family, the father will be held accountable in a way others in the family are not for how that family functions and runs. Hebrews 13, 17. This is what the Lord says in Hebrews 13, 17 as he describes this role. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So they need to be faithful in their duties with fear and trembling, but to do it joyfully and willingly. But then this is where Paul includes something which he hasn't touched on yet. He says that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Now, what does that term double honour mean? Comes up in verse 17, verse 18 explains it. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labourer deserves his wages. And so that idea of double honour is reference to a wage. That comes straight from Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. The labourer deserves his wages. In Luke chapter 10, I'll start at verse 7. So there's seven... Jesus first sent out the 12 to go and do ministry, to go out and be like missionaries. And then later on, you progress in Luke, then he sends out the 72. So 72 men are set aside to head out to labour and gospel work, to go about the villages and the towns preaching the gospel. And when they come to each town, what do they do about their food? Where are they going to sleep? Because they're doing this full time, they don't have time to go to the office, they don't have time to go down to the shed. They've got to be out preaching the gospel. And Jesus says this in verse 7 of Luke 10. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the labourer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And so the passages you read before and after points to they come to a town and there's a God-fearing family that says, We will give you board, shelter, come and stay with us. Jesus says to his workers, don't keep moving around, stay there. That family, those Christians, those God-fearing, that home, they are the ones who will provide your, your bedding, your food, your daily needs, your provisions. And Jesus says the labourer deserves his wages. So what those Christians provide so that they can be on about full-time gospel ministry are their wages. I'll read another passage. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. This is the Apostle Paul. Because we know that Paul intentionally didn't receive a wage. 
But 1 Corinthians 9, this is what he says. And I'll start at verse 4. As he speaks on behalf of the apostles, the gospel workers. And I'll read, there's a few verses here, so follow it if you can. 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter. So Peter was married. He wasn't celibate or single. He was a married man. Verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain, refrain from working for a living? 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And that picture of the not muzzling the ox, we've got a picture up there. Oxen have to tread around on that grain. And the loving thing is not to put a muzzle over their mouth, but where they are labouring, that those oxen should be able to feed from the wheat that they are treading. So what are the principles, this idea of a double honour and a wage for an elder? So let's shift to the life or the application. Firstly, this idea of a wage. In the context of those cross-references that we've seen, an elder receives a wage from a church, has been set apart by the church, so that his work is now serving the household of God. That is his work. And that's serving comes at the expense or instead of doing other work. That could mean serving the church on a part-time or full-time basis. The consequence being the man's ability to now provide or to earn a living is now compromised because he's putting all his time there and he can't be there. And so he's got to trust God and God is saying through these passages those needs that would be right for the church to meet them. Secondly, we don't need the second one just yet. You can click that one up. Daily needs are to come from the church. It's his daily needs. A guy isn't to get rich off a church. It's amazing the way you'll read about churches and the wages or the, what do you want to call it, income stipends some pastors receive or presume they should receive, like CEOs of companies. No. The church is to provide for their daily needs. So it's not to become like a second or third job. I've got a full-time job. I'm just gonna, if I can do things for the church, I can get more money and build up my bank balance. No. 
It's someone who's devoted. The church has said, we'll devote you to do this work in the church and we'll provide for your daily needs. Thirdly, there's a little word in that verse 17 that we mustn't overlook. It says, let an elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honour. Don't miss that. You don't just get a job as a pastor and it's your right then to get a pay. The church decides if there are elders and they're doing a good job, that before God we would feel it would be the right thing to do. If they're not doing it well, the church is under no obligation and shouldn't keep providing a wage for a man in that situation. If things are going badly under their leadership or they have no idea how to manage the household of God, the church is going backwards, the church would step such a person down and not just keep digging the same hole. I've got three, three scenarios come to mind. Because sometimes someone will go through college or Bible college, they'll get there, it's a bit like you want to be a teacher, you go to university, you get a degree, I'm allowed to be a teacher now. I go to Bible college, I get my diploma, my degree, I'm allowed to be a pastor now, as if somehow that's the qualification you need. But maybe a man's just not gifted. So having that oversight, those organisational abilities or gifts, keeping on top of everything just doesn't come naturally. Sure, he might have done really well on his Bachelor of Theology, but managing, overseeing, doing those things doesn't come naturally. And so a church must be careful that they don't just start having pity on someone or just trying to prop someone up. You should acknowledge that person. If he's in denial, need to help him, say, God's gifted us all and maybe you need to serve in other ways. So we're not harsh on the fella, but we just want to say, let's get this right and step the person down. They may still have opportunities to serve through preaching, teaching and other things even, but... Just because they have that role, we must be make sure that the gifting fits. Some of the greatest minds are just not people, pers- people, people persons. <laughs> Some people are just awkward with people. And sometimes these things don't come out until someone's been in a role for a while and then the church needs to be wise. Second scenario, maybe someone's not ruling well because they're slack or lazy. Paul writes in the verse that follows about labouring, labouring in the word and teaching. That word labouring, I'll read out some synonyms and it's, it's to strain, is to toil, is to grow weary, is to work with effort with your body, with your mind, to wear yourself out, to exhaust. That's what that word is about, labouring in the word. So the Lord has no expectation that a church should keep supporting someone if they put them on with a wage who is lazy, who's just onto a good wicket, or thinks somehow I have tenure in this role. No. If they're not putting in, need to rebuke them and step them down if needed. And the third scenario that came to mind, maybe a man's not ruling well because he's misguided. He's taking the church in a way that's not biblical. Jesus determines and says in his word how the church should be shepherded. And so a pastor can't or an elders can't just do the things they want to do. 
He's not there to receive a wage just to try and run an organisation. He's receiving a wage to care for souls, to not be absent from people's lives, to work hard in the word and with preaching, not to be given to worldly activities and consumed by those things. And so that's why it's important that as a church, we know what the, or churches know what the role of an elder is. So you can say, that's what you're doing is not what the Bible is calling you to do. So we all need to understand it. So if someone or an elder is not ruling well or leading well, we don't just keep giving him a wage or we make sure we don't put him in that role in the first place. So what is the work that's particularly pointed out here? In 1 Timothy, we've touched on that idea of ruling or leading, having that oversight. Says to, and then it goes on in verse 17, those who labour in preaching. Now, that's implied, but the word is literally that Greek word, logos. So it's literally those who labour in the word and teaching, which would imply preaching. So what's being pointed out there is part of the role of someone that the church says we're going to set them apart in this role is giving them time to labour in the word. The picture that comes to mind for me is you're allowing saying, we're going to set aside this time, give you the time, provide for you, so that you can go digging deep into God's Word. You can dig a deep well. You can go mining into God's Word. That takes time. Because in the end, that man needs to be shaped by the Word of God. That man needs to understand what the Word of God is saying. That man needs to be able to then teach that to the church so that we can all benefit that guy is to go and do the hard yards, to go dig, 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 do all the sweat, to then come and share the jewels. And so part of that time means labouring in the word. It's been pointed out, you go back a few decades and you talked about a pastor's study. He's in his study, implying that he's digging into the word. How often today do we talk about, oh, I'll be, meet you in the office. And this idea, the corporate, the business has crept in that, the pastor now has an office to run stuff rather than a study to labour in the word. And so that's a very important role. A man who visits people and to pastor souls needs to be steeped in the word of God. A man who is to preach and teach faithfully needs to be saturated in the word of God. A man who is oversee and prioritise and run and make sure the church is on the right track needs to be clear and washed in the word of God. So woe to a church if we have a pastor who just reads innovative books all the time, or the latest books from Kurong, but is not meditating on the Word of God. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for rebuking, correcting, teaching and training so that the man of God, it's actually in that context, the pastor, may be partially, no, thoroughly equipped. If all our Christian bookstores disappeared... God is saying the church would still be able to get through because we've got the word of God which thoroughly equips us. There are helpful things to read, wise things to read, but you need discernment as to what to read. But you never want to be reading so much that you're distracted from the word. Another point to make out on this is that it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, 
especially those who labour, it's their work, it's their wage by which they receive through the word and teaching. So I don't see it saying that there are going to be elders in the church where some teach and some don't teach. But they both have oversight because back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, one of the qualifications to be an elder is able to teach. It's the last in the list of 1 Timothy 3, 2. So all elders have to be able to teach. So in some way, all the elders in some way are involved with leading a Bible study, with teaching, preaching, evangelism, things like that. But there will be some elders who have been set as part to especially labour in those things. So in a sense, they'd carry the bulk of the responsibility for the teaching and the preaching and ministry of the word. And so that's the first part there, the truth and the application. That in a church, it would be right for a church to consider, well, to have elders and then to consider, are there some elders or an elder worthy that the church thinks for the benefit to consider for the benefit of the church, whether it be worthwhile to set them apart from their other labours to be able to labour for the Lord and to provide for them. The second thing that we need to apply, and we can go down the next one, Amy. Accusations. Get serious. I'll read verses 19 to 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So, some principles or the doctrines. A pastor, a minister, an elder must, is never above the law. Is never to be treated differently or have special consideration. It's implied in those verses, if there's a, something that must be addressed, it must be addressed. So important. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. One of the key roles, that's why setting aside someone to be an elder is so crucial that character and things are looked at. And godliness is that they are to be those in the church who can be imitated in their faith. And yet if you've got an elder or a pastor or a minister conducting themselves in a way that is ungodly, that is not to be imitated, that's a disgrace on the gospel. That brings the church into disrepute. That has the potential to lead people astray because if the pastor is allowed to behave like that, we can too. Or it can lead to the situation where people just don't want nothing to do with the church or that church in particular. Pastors, elders are to be men who bear good fruit, who do the things that please God. If they are not, it must be addressed. And this is for the good of the church. It talks about at the end of those verses... So that the rest may stand in fear. People need to know that sin is not to be tolerated in the church. If we're to grow and mature as a people of God, we need to stamp it out. We need to get rid of the yeast, Jesus said. 
And the worst thing for a church is a minister or a pastor who's corrupted by sin, who's given to carnal things. He'll be a thorn in the side of the church. And so a godly pastor, the Bible makes quite clear, as any godly man or woman will receive a rebuke favorably. The godly man will desire to be kept accountable and he will want a loving brother or sister to come and pick him up on something if he's going astray. To say, have you seen this? Do you realize what you're doing? That is what a godly pastor will do. He won't try and cover it up. And then we've got this extraordinary reality that comes out in verse 21. And this is a reality that is taking place right now. We sit here and we think we're just going through the motions probably. Maybe some of us are thinking about other things right now. Maybe you're looking at something in the church. Maybe your mind's on other things and you sort of think, we're just doing what we're doing here and then we'll all scatter. But then we've got verse 21. All this is done in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. We gather here right now in the presence of God. God, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who is worthy to receive all glory and honor. He's watching us here now. And he's watching each one of us as we go out. And he's watching each one of us as we go into our homes. The father's watching us. The son is watching us. All these things. And in this context, watching to make sure we uphold this and we keep ministers to account. The son is watching us. Revelation 2 and 3 speaks about how Jesus walks amongst his churches. Christ walks amongst us. Our eyes do not see. One day they will. But just as Jesus walked amongst the church in Ephesus and Pergamon and Thyatira, so he walks amongst the church in Chapel Street. He sees everything. He knows everything. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth looking to see those who are fully committed to him, those who would seek to do his will and uphold his word. And then we're told too, the angels are watching. The angels watch and they see. In some way the Bible even says somehow the angels will be called as witnesses on the final day. And he refers to the elect angels those angels who are not the fallen angels, those who have remained faithful to God, those who have been elected, chosen to live in obedience to God. Angels are watching. Angels see. It grieves my heart to know the things when I wake up to myself and see what God says, things that I've done, knowing that I've not ever, ever, ever been alone. And you run to the cross. And in this context... Paul is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, deal with the matters that need to be dealt with. If you have a corrupt pastor or a minister, make sure. But also too, if people are making false accusations, don't rush. So what are some principles that come out of this? What is the loving thing to do as we know these truths? So firstly, we don't ignore a situation. If you see someone, if you see a pastor or an elder conducting themselves in an ungodly manner, could be on the golf course. None of this idea that it's just about here, that's my life out there. No, it could be anywhere. 
It must not be ignored. The second thing we are told, the importance of witnesses. Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We read from Deuteronomy where the principle comes from. And the main principle why that's so important is to make sure it's not a malicious accusation. A pastor who is faithful, who holds fast to the word of God, is never going to please everyone, is in fact going to cause people to get rubbed up the wrong way who don't want to hear God's word or put God's word into practice or don't want to be challenged on things. There's all sorts of reasons why people in the church have made false accusations or have wanted to tear a pastor down and they've been malicious. And so one of the reasons, the principle for witnesses to make sure that's not what's going down. But with witnesses, once the witnesses are firm and you've got a case to deal with, it must be investigated thoroughly and properly. The principle that comes out that we see here in verse 20, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everyone. So that would imply that they've been spoken to and they're not changing their ways. They've been spoken to, they're not changing their ways, which is the principle of Matthew 18. If you or I, if we see one another doing something, if Josh, if Josh sees me doing something, he, comes, he doesn't shame me in front of everyone and tell everyone what a horrible person. He comes and talks to me. And if I'm godly and wise, I'm going to thank him and repent. But if that doesn't change and I keep doing what I'm doing, Josh comes with James to talk to me. And if that doesn't change, I say, oh, go away, I'm going to keep doing it. Then in my name, I should come before the church and what I'm doing should be discussed and made a point of. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear, to know that sin is evil. And so that's the principle that we've seen that is playing out here with pastors. So I'll take that through some levels. If a pastor is caught doing something and it's ungodly, it needs to be addressed. Don't shame him one on one if he's not changing. But if what he's doing is far more serious, such as it's not a criminal offence anymore, but if he's committing adultery, he's to be stood down immediately. He's doing things like that. It's not a matter of keeping that... You can do that in a way that would deal with the situation without it necessarily having to go to the whole church, but he must be stood down immediately. And if he's unrepentant, ultimately it needs to be explained and dealt with in the church. And then, again, on a more serious level, again, if it's something, well, not more serious level, but on a criminal level, if it's a matter that he's done, it must be reported to the appropriate authorities immediately. But then by the, the church seeks by the grace of God to bring that man to repentance and to faith, but not dodging the criminal consequences that need to be faced. And so that's one reason why it is helpful and as the bible encourages a plurality of elders so if we as a church if you have a pastor and he's doing the wrong thing sometimes it can be very difficult in a church to have to deal with that because in some churches that pastor is like a law unto himself he's an authority everyone actually fears him in some way which is ungodly and unhelpful but when you have a plurality of pastors or elders 
and one pastor's doing the wrong thing, you, the other elders need to be the ones that you go to to try and pull him into line. But what do you do if you don't have elders or pastors like that? Then I think a wise thing to do is you go to a church that's like-minded or with whom you have fellowship that they can come and help in the situation. And if you're part of a healthy, godly denomination, that those leaders might be able to come and step into the life of the church and deal with it. But the one option that is not an option is to do nothing. 1 Corinthians 5, we see sin going down in the church and the church is doing nothing. And God says that is unacceptable. So even if we have no other elders, even if we have no denomination, other churches, the congregation, the church, those people who are committed as members in the life of the church, you are responsible to make sure it's dealt with. However difficult that might be to meet together, appoint one, two, three people to go and meet with him and deal with the situation. But none of us get to stand before God one day and said we couldn't do anything. We must act. It says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be the teachers or the elders in the church, for you know that those who do that will be judged with greater strictness. And so it's right in a church that you don't lower the bar for a pastor or cut him slack, but hold everyone up to account. In fact, you tighten that. You treat him with stricter standards. The thing that comes to mind, if you have a, what's the role of a policeman? A policeman is to uphold the law. A policeman is there to deal with people who do the wrong thing. But if you have a policeman who's using his position in a way that lets him dodge the law, break the law... If you have someone who's meant to uphold the good of society, but he's not doing it, that just leads and opens the way to all sorts of corruption and rot going in. The pastors in the church have a responsibility to uphold the word of God, to make sure we're upholding the truth. And so what will they do if they go astray? They should be dealt with more strictly. Don't cut any slack, in fact, tighten it. Greater responsibility, greater harshness if they fall aside or fall away. That we might all fear and acknowledge the righteousness of God. And so that verse says, no partiality, no prejudging. You investigate properly if there are the witnesses to make sure there's nothing malicious. Deal with it biblically, lawfully and thoroughly because we delight in Christ. We want Christ's name to be exalted. We want the gospel preached. We want there to be no stumbling block with the gospel. We don't want issues like that to stop people hearing about how through faith in Jesus Christ they can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, getting distracted by all those sort of things. We don't want people being put off Christ because they're saying, if that's what it means, but it's a false representation. For the good of the gospel, the glory of God, we've got to uphold these things. And so the Lord says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Do this. Don't fudge it. And so there are two more things that we've looked at this morning that please Jesus. If we as a church are seeking to do the will of God, they have two things to consider. Just as all the other things. And it's important that we're all on the same page. Because as we do these things, we praise Jesus, we exalt his name, 
and we're being the salt and light in the world that we need to be. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would forgive us for every time we have cut corners, that you would forgive us for every time we have not applied your word because it has been difficult or because we haven't wanted discomfort. Father, we pray too for forgiveness for every time we act with ignorance merely because we have not looked into your word. But Father, we thank you that you have given us your word which is sufficient to thoroughly equip us to be your household, to practice rightly. And so Father, we pray, especially in this situation where an elder or a minister could go astray, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to put it into practice. Lord, that we would do it because it's the loving thing to do. And so, Father, continue to teach us the things that please you. Continue to help us to order every aspect of our lives and of our church family in a way that's in step with you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.